Taking Sigmund Freud's theories as a point of departure, Jean-Michel Rabatis' 2014 book *The Cambridge Introduction to Literature and Psychoanalysis* explores the intriguing ties between psychoanalysis and literature. Thank you for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. With me today is Professor Jean-Michel Rabatis. He is professor of English and comparative literature at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Rabatis has authored and edited more than 40 books on modernism, psychoanalysis, contemporary art, philosophy, and writers like Beckett, Pound, and Joyce. Since 2008, he has been a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Welcome, Jean Michel. It's a great honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Claire. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to dialogue with you so far away, and meet so many of your listeners. It's truly an honor for us to have you on the show. Well, to begin with, psychoanalysis in academia has a bad press overall. As you mentioned in the beginning of your book, if one plans to study Hamlet's unconsciousness for his graduate school application, he is likely to be turned down. That really cracks me up. The reason that psychoanalysis is often associated with bad, lazy, and unsophisticated reading is because that it has lost its appeal in the humanities since World War II and remains only strong at the few's margins. We're talking about film, art, gender, trauma, and cultural studies, right? Could you please help us understand the origin of psychoanalysis, what it was, and how it fell out of the academy's favor? Great, that's a great question. Thank you very much. Indeed, today the situation hasn't changed very much. It is true that in mainstream programs in English comparative literature, nobody uses psychoanalysis directly to tackle authors. Why? Because it used to be extremely successful, maybe sixty, seventy years ago, and what it produced has been universally rejected because it was more, I would say, a psychobiographical approach to works, which means that works were seen as an extension of a personality with its neuroses, conflicts, expression. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, we use biography, but differently, as part of a multivalent context. And um, the, the example that everybody likes attacking is Marie Bonaparte's approach to Edgar Allan Poe, and、mm. it reads really badly. Freud liked it very much, so that's the dangerous element. In classical psychoanalysis applied to literature,、mm -hmm. uh, however, as you mentioned, one new resource is that so many slightly marginal domains like queer studies, gender studies, film studies, trauma studies, and so on use、mm -hmm. a different kind of psychoanalysis, and that is a good sign. Right. Well, why do literature scholars nowadays study Freud more than clinical psychologists? How would you explain to a clinical therapist if they wonder what psychoanalysis has to do with literature? Psychoanalysis has a lot to do with literature. I'm not saying it is a purely literary manifestation. That would be an exaggeration. However, 
I discovered that a very long time ago when I visited for the first time Freud's museum in London. What you discover when you see his library, which was enormous, is that what we call psychoanalysis, therapy, medical issues, is about one-tenth of his library. Mostly mm -hmm. literature in many languages, comparative religion, Egyptology, and so many other things that would be like a humanist library. It's not just Freud. He made it into a principle for the psychoanalysts belonging to his school. And here I think there's a huge difference between what I see in the United States and what I see in Europe, or let's say France, England, and so on, where most psychoanalysts are like Freud. That is, they keep on reading a lot of literature, theory, philosophy, and so on. Not so much in the United States. Complicated history, different history, of course. But in the United States, you will find few, fewer psychoanalysts who will admit to reading a book a month or a week, like most of my French friends or British friends or German friends. <clears throat> so for Freud, it was, what did you gain? you gained a certain insight into human nature. You could do it in various ways, but he thought that by meditating, let's say on Shakespeare, since he loved Shakespeare and had memorized mm -hmm. most of Shakespeare, you mm -hmm. can understand things that you could understand in real life, but you will understand them more, I would say, stylized, faster, and better expressed somehow. So that's this... Uh, intrinsic conception that psychoanalysis has to do with literature. And <clears throat> it's something that I, I explored before even Freud had invented psychoanalysis. He, uh, for 10 years, had a correspondence with a, a good friend of his, Edward Zilberstein, and mm -hmm. they were to write to each other every week about the week, about what they had seen, their meditations, what they had read, books they could recommend to one another. And this generated the idea of the talking cure. That is that you can cure certain symptoms by just using language, talking, and so on. It may not look very literary as such, but it is, in fact. Can Freud be viewed as part of a literary movement, what we call today as modernism? Could you give us a brief sketch of Freud as a man of the 19th century? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, I'm just back from a big conference in Brooklyn called the Modernist Studies Association Conference, right. where we study modernism under all its aspects. And of course, Freud is very often mentioned in those discussions, in those conversations. It's mm -hmm. not so much that Freud was what you would call a modern or a modernist himself in his tastes. He had relatively right. conservative tastes. He did not really uh, go to musical events. He liked the theater and he liked reading a lot. However, he was close to many interesting writers like Zweig in Vienna. And one can say that he was aware that what he was doing on a daily basis, I want to insist, was writing, 
Freud basically never let a day pass without having written something. And it was so every night he would write. And we know that he would work on several books or several articles at the same time. So he was a writer. And he is indeed in, I would say, sync with the movement of modernism. Why? Because what we call modernism starts more or less at the end of the 19th century. And it consists into a new exploration of the psyche, an exploration that goes back to the archaic past. And this is what Freud was doing. And so if you, even if you read some of the modernists who pretended not to like Freud, like Eliot, T.S. Eliot, uh, who fought with Freud horribly, or Ezra Pound, who <laughs> hated Freud for many reasons, what they do is not very different from what Freud was doing in his texts. That is, going back to a sort of Darwinian notion of the past of humanity, understanding violence, aggression, trauma, killing the father, uh, wanting to sleep with the mother, and preparing something that he described as the uneasiness, unbehagen, of culture. It's hard to translate. It's the book, the famous book is Civilization, and it discontents. But we can say that most modernist writers were interested in giving a better definition of culture, a livable definition of culture, a livable definition of the links between culture and politics. And this is also part of Freud's uh, general, um, I would say, impetus and insight. Right, right. Maybe we can back up a little bit, because since some of our listeners have no idea what modernism is, I know you briefly just mentioned and explained the definition of modernism. Could you expand more on this, this term modernism? That, yeah. Modernism in the Anglo-American sense mm -hmm. uh, generally covers the group of people who, just before the First World War and between the two wars, were busy mm -hmm. changing literature and culture. Uh, mm -hmm. People like Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, Yeats, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot in, in the U.S., in France, you could say surrealism, Dadaism, in Italy, futurism, and in uh, Germany, expressionism. It was, in all those cases, a movement that was not only literary, it was also artistic. And you had little groups, manifestos, publications, uh, at, at times uh, aggressive manifestations like the Surrealists uh, would often disrupt um, other people's um, performances, at times fight even. So it was cultural disturbance and a lot of infighting, but what was shared by all was a wish to use art, culture, writing, music, to change the world somehow and prepare for, a, you know, after the catastrophe of the First World War, there was a sense that civilization 
had perhaps caused that catastrophe. And so it had to be rethought fundamentally. And I think they all wanted to do this in various ways. Some were more on the right, others more on the left. Uh, Pound, Yates, and Elliot were notoriously on the right, but many others were on the left. The surrealists uh, wanted to be Marxist or Trotskyites and so on. Freud himself, in his book on civilization, is very critical of the idea of communism. However, <laughs> he spends a lot of time discussing with the idea of sharing everything and the idea of uh, trying not to kill one's neighbor, because this is uh, an important issue uh, for the times, for the time of intense uh, racism and one can say that Freud was extremely aware that if he had to have an impact, he would have to understand the roots of racism. Why is it that we tend to hate the person who is a little like us, but not exactly like us, and so on? Right, right. That's great. Well, how does Freud's famous work that we know as Interpretation of Dreams manifest the major psychological inspirations from which modernity sought to draw? It's, I would say, one of the great texts of modernism and of modernity, the interpretation mm -hmm. of dreams. It's interesting to read it, and one can do it in English, in a new translation by Crick of the first version, because when we have the final version that we can find on the web, it's a very thick book. In fact, it was a slim book originally. And when you read the first version, you can see that it is much more a sort of disguised autobiography in which Freud uses so many of his own dreams and reveals mm -hmm. so much about him. But he had the impression that he had found a principle to understand dreams. Up to his analysis, you had various uh, conceptions about dream, but nobody really believed that you could have a scientific approach to the activity right. of dreaming. Right. Today, we know that Freud didn't know everything. He didn't know anything about REM and the brain mapping and so on. However, a number of recent scholars have shown that mm -hmm. his intuitions are exactly right. Freud has this idea that what constitutes the energy of a dream is what you might call libidinal energy. He calls it wish fulfillment. Wish, we have to be uh, careful, uh, doesn't mean just unbridled lust. Uh, it can mean, on the contrary, anguished lust, as in so many of his own dreams, when he is about to imagine something like the impossible scene where he would be in his mother's bed, and then the consequence is an anguish attack. However, what contemporary uh, theoreticians have shown is that via uh, dopamine and things that the brain is producing all the time when we sleep, we have the same principle indeed, that the activity of dreaming is connected with the centers of gratification and sexuality one could say. So this is a general principle that Freud discovered. At the same time, what he showed was 
how extraordinary the world of dreams could be and how much it could bring to culture. And of course, if we think not only of Dadaism and Surrealism, but they, that is the, the Surrealism systematized the idea of writing like a dream, but so many of the innovators in modernist literature, for me, the best would be Franz Kafka. Uh, what distinguishes Kafka is that whenever he writes a little story or a long novel, he plunges you in a dream logic. And so yes. that has changed completely the way we think about ourselves, about the world, and so on. And it's not to say that Freud created it, but he belonged to the same movement of exploration of the psyche, exploration of that part of the world when we are asleep. And for me, a great book, I cannot call it a novel, of modernism is Joyce's last work, Finnegan's Wake. Finnegan's Wake uh, is a huge attempt at recreating a dream. And mm -hmm. Joyce said, I have to write like a dream. And so dreams are notoriously opaque, uh, contradictory, made up of uh, people who are uh, both good and bad, man and woman, uh, coalescences of various individualities and so on. This is what Joyce did in, in a book that is admittedly quite difficult to read, Finnegan's Way, but that is presented as a sort of nightmare of humanity. And so right. there is a direct link between the interpretation of dreams and Finnegan's Way. Actually, uh, Joyce was always referring to Freud and he had read Freud, we know. Right, right. Well, what useful function did Freud see in literature? In other words, how does literature offer insights to psychoanalysis? Literature offers insights uh, to psychoanalysis because uh, it allows uh, you, I have to say, what is psychoanalysis uh, before we, we okay. Right. So how, right. how should we understand it? in a purely Freudian way. Psychoanalysis is an exchange between a psychoanalyst and an analysant who will only use language, nothing else. Freud rejected touching, hypnotizing, medication, and all that. So it means that for a number of months, maybe years, somebody would, will come at regular intervals, lie down on the couch, and speak without any censorship, letting mm -hmm. anything come, and the psychoanalyst will say something or be silent and help and work with the patient. Mm -hmm. Literature, how does literature work? Okay, We, we read books, uh, or we listen to books, we can go to classes and so on. But why do we like literature? Generally, because it's a way of projecting ourselves into imaginary lives. For a moment, we are standards, uh, heroes, or we, we become so-and-so, and we can experience with Tolstoy, Russia, we, even if we've never been in Russia, we can go to Japan with Mishima, 
and so on. So it's kind of exercise of the imagination that generally has to be relevant enough so that we can project and enjoy and maybe understand a few things. So you see, in the way I describe those two processes, you can see that it has something in common. And for Freud, uh, fundamentally, in many, many cases, he would say that he was surprised to see in authors he was reading. If you have enjoyed this episode so far and desire to complete the entire episode, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening.